Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word as we uh, study these two chapters this morning. Would you open our hearts to receive from you? Uh, Give us grace, Lord, for the work before us today and the week ahead. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Chapter 17 and 18 are all about the fall of Babylon. John has, has finished the three series of seven judgments. And now it's like he, he goes back to discuss key themes. The fall of Babylon, 17 and 18, and the day of the Lord in 1920. And then finally, uh, the new heavens and the new earth in 21 and 22. But here we are in 17 18. The fall of Babylon, and we see this stunning woman. John sees this beautiful woman. She's dressed like a queen with gold and jewels. But rather than being a queen, we're told she's a prostitute called Babylon. She's the great whore, the mother of all detestable things, we're we're told. And uh, as you might expect, a queen to be riding a majestic beast and maybe have, you know, a golden cup in her hand in sort of celebration. It turns out here it's sort of a twisted mockery of the image. Rather than being a queen, again, she's the prostitute. She's riding the scarlet beast from the sign visions. And rather than having sort of, uh, you know, wine or some sort of wonderful drink in her hand, she's actually drunk on the blood of Christian martyrs. Uh, what's, What's going on? And so the accompanying angel with John starts to interpret the vision. John is, is quite shocked by all of it in verse 6. And the angel says, why do you marvel? And he starts to kind of walk through what this is about. And essentially, the woman represents the lust of godless societies, right? She's covered in sumptuous clothing and, and jewelry, which signifies sort of the allure of prosperity. And, and, and allure is the best word. Again, prostitute is probably the best word for her because we keep hearing how the kings, the powerful rulers of the world, are enamored with her. Uh, and they commit sexual immorality with her. They throw their lot in with her. Um, she's riding the beast. And remember, the beasts are, uh, are symbolic of the rebellious nations from the sign visions. And so you've got here... It's almost like she's reveling in, in bloodshed and lust and pleasure and power kind of all rolled into one, right? The beast was portraying the state's power, and now the prostitute is symbolizing the, it's like the seductive appeal of worldly systems that are absorbed with affluence and pleasure, right? She's like the epitome of, of kind of cultural idolatry, this idea of pursuing wealth or pursuing pleasure and worshiping the, the ruthless sort of political powers and regimes that are sort of filled with superiority. Uh, so much so, it's so kind of grotesque and, and uh, deceptive and broken and, and, and evil that they've gone about killing those who disagree and, and, uh, and call them into something other than their own sort of self-centered ends. Anyone who's sort of being a Christian in the face of this system is put to death. And so this whole, this whole image is about sort of flaunting a rebelliousness against God's design. We don't see here any sort of human flourishing, any sort of shalom of God. In fact, she is Babylon. Verse 5, she's named Babylon. Babylon. 
the great. And I think one of the key points I want to bring out in this first chapter, chapter 17, is this, is, is this idea of sinful societies that become addicted to pleasure and to power are not unusual. We see this time and time again in human history. In fact, we saw this all the way back at the Tower of Babel in Genesis, from which Babylon gets its name. So what was going on at Babel, to help us understand this image of Babylon? Well, at Babel, the people sought to become like God himself, right? Their idea was to unite together in open rebellion against God, to usurp God's authority. And if you look back at Genesis 11, you'll see there's sort of a religious spirit of Babel, and there's also an economic spirit of Babel. The religious spirit of Babel was this belief that we can achieve salvation through our works, through what we do. That's the the bedrock of religious Babel and religious Babylon. Genesis 11.4 says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now just think for a moment how often the ambitions of the secular societies around us seek to achieve a sort of salvation on their own uh, agendas to live a certain life, to build for ourselves a city where we can be like God, right? This is, this is uh, a depiction of the selfishness and idolatry that is present in so many of our countries today. There's also a, uh, an economic Babylon. There's a desire to glorify ourselves rather than God. And you see that again back in Genesis 11. Genesis 11 verse 4 says, and let us make for ourselves a name. And these sorts of societies, the Babel-like societies, the Babylon-like societies, rise up all through world history. But here we find in Revelation 17, 18, sort of a ultimate personification of Babylon. And this system is confronted by the loving testimony of the church as disciples of Jesus call people out of addiction to pleasure and out of addiction to power and out of addictions to our sin and call us into life-giving relationship with Jesus. But in response to that faithful witness of the church, we find that such societies often put Jesus' disciples to death. And that's why we get this reference about the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs or witnesses of Jesus. There's all sorts of details uh, in the section, verses 7 to 14, uh, that are debated and interesting, the seven kings and the mountains and, and the horns and all of that. But the, I think the main theme here for John, for us, through John, is the, is the reminder that for the seven churches he was writing to, when they would have looked at Rome, which would have been the, the kind of the example of the, the newest version of Babylon at the time, They would have seen that sort of addiction to power and to pleasure. And here John is telling them, yes, these powers exist. Yes, societies go a terrible way. But the Lamb will ultimately have the victory over such broken and evil societies. We know that nations, and so for us, if we look at that and we know that that was hopeful for them, when they looked at Rome and the seemingly unbeatable power of Rome, the pleasure-seeking of Rome, 
to know that Jesus was actually greater and more powerful. And even if they were killed for their faith under Nero or Domitian, the various emperors who went about slaughtering Christians, that they ultimately had victory in Jesus. Verse 14, such nations, they'll make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them, for he's the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's a good description that I think as Christians we want to hold to, that we would be with Jesus, called, chosen, and faithful. So in John's day, Rome, we could say, was simply the newest version of the the Old Testament archetype of Babel or Babylon, of humanity in rebellion against God. And we see that societies and nations all throughout human history do come together to exalt their own economic and military security, their own ideas and agendas, and often those become a false god, a sort of idolatry. This isn't something that was just limited to the past. You know, to, this is just Rome in first century uh, A.D. Nor would I say is it just a, a future portrait of some end times kind of empire, but rather what we see here is a portrait of the sinful human condition throughout history. Such Babylons come and go. But there will be a day when Jesus returns and he will defeat Babylon fully and replace it with his kingdom. The angel's very specific about this, that the beast and the prostitute will come to nothing. Rulers and authorities who do give their allegiance to the evil of the prostitute, of the beast, of the dragon, will eventually go to their own destruction. And while such Rulers and their agendas may seem big and powerful to us, regular people, throughout history. There's a call here to remember that Jesus is truly Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Again, looking back at verse 14. And that those killed in these systems for their Christian faith are not ultimately defeated, but again, are conquering victors with Christ. That language we saw all through the seven letters at the beginning of revelation those who conquer will be called those who conquer will be given and here they're called chosen and faithful now i want to move to chapter 18 after the description of the this prostitute of babylon we hear the declaration that the city of babylon the great has fallen and chapter 18 is totally devoted to the city's destruction um, I've, I've passed over several sections, but you get kings mourning about the fall of Babylon. You get merchants mourning about the fall of Babylon. And everyone is wailing <laughs> that, that this system is gone and destroyed. But it begins with a call for the faithful church to come out of her, verse 4, not to participate in the sins of greed and sensual luxury because Babylon will be judged. Now remember how when I, we were talking about the Tower of Babel, sort of the first Babylon, and all that it uh, personifies. There's a religious drive. We're going to make ourselves like God. We're going to be up in heaven. And there was an economic drive as well. We're going to build something for ourselves. So you could also say that chapter 17 
depicts Babylon as that sort of religious system operating in opposition to God. And chapter 18 now depicts Babylon as that economic system operating in opposition to God. And as you can imagine, there are some scholars who suppose this is about the actual rebuilding of a city in the Middle East. And others say, uh, you know, it's not a literal depiction of the fall of an earthly city, but it's portraying God's judgment to the great sort of satanic system of evil that has corrupted human hearts and human societies throughout history. I like how one scholar puts it here. I'm going to read this, uh, this passage from this one scholar. He said, I, I expect that the literal city may be rebuilt and may suffer destruction. However, I also believe that what's in view here is more than just a literal city. It is also what the city has stood for and promoted throughout history, namely a satanic system marked by every form of idolatrous humanism. And I think that's the best way to read these two chapters. Whether you want to take it as a a future city that is sort of the epitome of all of those drives and evil desires, that's fine. Or whether you take it as God dismantling and destroying sort of all of those systems themselves, whether it's one in a city in one geographical location or that whole sort of idolatrous satanic agenda in in secular cultures all around the world, that works too. The point is God is defeating the evil in the world. There's several places, though, and what I want to draw our attention to uh, in this next little section is that there's several places where we find here echoes of the Old Testament. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 18, we hear the, uh, the arrogance of the city. Verse 7 says, She glorified herself and lived in luxury. She said in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow. Mourning I shall never see. Meaning grief, not, you know, not daylight. Grieving she'll never see. And this sort of uh, elitist presumption that we hear from the city of Babylon echoes the same sort of elitist claims from other idolatrous nations that the that Israel's prophets often spoke against in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah. So I want to just read to you, listen to the words of Isaiah from Isaiah 47 regarding ancient Babylon. Listen to this and and see how much it sounds uh, like it's addressing this same sort of entity from Revelation. This is Isaiah. Now hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am. There is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. It's almost a, almost word for word what you see in Revelation. And then Isaiah says, But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. This is Isaiah's call regarding the destruction of ancient Babylon. And so you see that echo from the Old Testament coming to uh, kind of being picked up and, and, and ful- not just I mean, what was fulfilled then, but sort of fulfilled in greater measure again here in Revelation. You also see, just as we have in Revelation 18, all of these mourning of the kings and the world leaders who are so upset. Look again at chapter 18, verse 9. The kings of the earth 
who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Listen, listen to uh, these words from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 26, he talks about the rulers mourning over the destruction of the city of Tyre. And listen to the similarities here. Ezekiel 26, 16. Then all the princes of the sea will step down from their thrones and remove their robes and strip off their embroidered garments. In their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre, like one destroyed in the midst of the sea with your abundant wealth and merchandise you enriched the kings of earth? And so in the same way, we see a similar mourning of world leaders, just as we do in Old Testament prophets that we do here in Revelation as well. This sense of, of people mourning when they see the collapse of a system that has sustained them and enabled them to live in luxury. And again, that idea of committing fornication with her or sexual immorality with her is the way of expressing that they shared in this system. They gave themselves fully to this system of luxury and pleasure and power. And so the kings and the rulers and the merchants and the rich traders, they're all grieving. They loved the allure of Babylon, her power and her pleasure. They loved the money they made by participating in this godless society. And just as we hear uh, kings and rulers of the past mourning over the destruction of ancient cities and hear kings and rulers uh, mourning over the destruction of Babylon, Heaven also rejoiced over the destruction of ancient godless societies in the same way we have heaven rejoicing here in chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given her judgment for you against her. And finally, at the end of all the mourning, in verse 21, we have a mighty angel takes up a stone like a great millstone and he threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And this is symbolic of Babylon's fate. It's never going to rise again. But this is also a direct echo from Jeremiah 51. And Jeremiah says, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her. And they shall become exhausted. And just as it's impossible for that huge stone to rise again to the surface on its own accord, the idea is so this whole economic system that's driven the world throughout history will sink and it's never going to rise again. Actually, Nehemiah uh, has a similar echo when he's talking about ex- the Exodus. In Nehemiah 9.11, he says, You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. He's talking about Israel escaping over the Red Sea, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. So there's this echo throughout God's word of idolatrous system societies who God allows to endure for a time, giving room for people to repent, but ultimately bringing them to their own destruction. This idea is symbolic Uh, symbolically pictured as a giant stone getting thrown into water. You can't lift it again. All this to say, Babylon's destruction will be sudden and violent and permanent. And John is drawing on Old Testament passages of God's just, righteous destruction of evil, bloodthirsty nations. 
And so in the same way, Revelation tells us this final Babylon and this whole spirit of of self-sufficient, elitist, human idolatry that we see rear its head all throughout human history will finally and ultimately be defeated by the Lamb. Praise the Lord. That'd be great. What are some of the implications for us today when we think about this? I recently uh, finished reading a book called Bringing Up Boys, which is a, a really quite an excellent book written by two uh, counselors. I believe they're both counselors. Uh, and it incorporates sort of biblical wisdom about raising children, but also with brain science, exploring the differences between boys and girls, uh, encouraging ways for parents to understand their sons well. And as I was reading this description of the prostitute and the allure of pleasure and wealth, it was just reminding me of the calling that we as parents, if you have children or you have nieces or nephews, the calling that we have to uh, help children navigate a healthy understanding of, of sex and pleasure as they mature. This idea we hold to as Christians that sex is a gift from God that's meant to be enjoyed in the intimacy of a committed covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, we live in a culture, I don't need to tell you this, but we live in a culture that does not live that truth out, does not understand that truth, that would openly mock that truth. It would sound very much like the description of Babylon, uh, mocking uh, the saints. It's also easier than ever for us to encounter sexually explicit material. Uh, that allure of Babylon is very real online, anywhere you might go. And living our Christian faith in such a society will bring ridicule, much as we see that depicted here in Revelation. And I just want to say on that point, uh, honoring God's purposes and the design for sexual intimacy within marriage is not restrictive or backwards. It's actually about honoring your body and the bodies of others not to treat people as a means to my own end. I just can't treat this person for my own pleasure-seeking, but I need to see them as a whole person bearing God's image. And the call for us is to understand the, the beauty and the power of intimacy so much that we as Christians don't cheapen sex and intimacy, but we treasure them as part of God's gift and therefore something that I would only want to entrust to a person who's made a committed promise to be faithful unto me in sickness and in health for richer or for poor. And that really came, just came to mind as I was reading through this description of the allure of Babylon that we also see around us so much in our society today that, that, that call to engage in our own pleasure-seeking, our own greed, is so very real in our time. And there's a call on us as the church to live out the design of God, not in a prudish kind of way, but because we so love God's, God and God's design for us that we know this is actually what brings health and life and goodness. And for us as parents and as families to lead our children in a healthy understanding of what that means. And if you've got kids and you're going, I don't know how to navigate that, got some excellent books I could encourage you to read and articles to help you navigate 
the allures of Babylon with your children and how to help them uh, understand God's design and why that is so good and helpful and beautiful in a fallen world. But that allure is all around us. And so how are we called to live? Well, we know as Christians we're called to point people lovingly to Jesus. We're called to bear witness to him and to resist the temptations of Babylon, especially in our age where we very much see the country around us, the society around us, obsessed with power and pleasure and greed. And in such a world, the witness of the church is not always well received, but that doesn't stop us from living courageously the mission and the calling that we have from God. John describes Babylon as this religious and economic idolatrous system that's just rotten from the inside out with self-interest and pleasure-seeking and power-seeking. And as believers, we've always lived within such systems. We know we're not to adopt the selfish philosophy that drives it. Revelation teaches us that those idolatrous societies will end either just before or with Jesus' return. I like what Constable puts in his commentary. He puts it this way. He says, as Christians, we need to make sure we are not citizens of this Babylon by laying up treasure on earth, but are truly citizens of heaven by laying up treasure there. This chapter should challenge us to evaluate our financial goals and to repudiate selfish, arrogant living. And so as we close our sermon, the question I have for us is what areas of your life is the Holy Spirit calling you to lay aside selfish or arrogant living? And do you long for the embrace and the joy and the peace of a simple and good life with Jesus. As we pray, let's commit ourselves to loving and serving him, even in a Babylon-like world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning, for the call you have upon your church to live with courage uh, and mission in a world that is far from you, but a world you deeply love. God, I thank you that you will eventually deal with the evil, the, the lust, the greed that so dominates so much of our imaginations and the society around us. And I pray for strength and courage to stand firm in our love for you and the values that you call us to because of your gospel. Pray you'd help us to live that out well. I pray especially for students that are listening to this who are going to high school and encountering all of these ideas. Uh, many of which are Babylon-laden ideas. And I pray, God, that you would give each one wisdom and grace to navigate well uh, what it means to live for you in a world that does not love you. Lord, this morning, recognize that uh, for some this is a very difficult time. And Jesus, I pray that you would come and bring your comfort and your grace and your hope to bear in the lives of each one. Lord, would you come and and witness to our spirits 
bring healing and life, Lord, where we are struggling. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in us, that you do change and transform us, that you call us out of darkness and into light. You call us to live in your kingdom, to be filled with your spirit, to walk humbly before you, to love those around us, those that others find unlovable. Jesus, would you give us the courage and the wisdom and the boldness to love others well, to live for you in such a time as this, to resist the allures of Babylon, the pleasure and the lust and the power-seeking and the greed that can so easily consume us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to resist the temptations we face, and give us that courage, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, to live for you. With the words you taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us for this service. Uh, be blessed as you go. We are going to be set up for our uh, coffee time afterwards. Are we at 10.30, Brian, or quarter after? What do we think? It Quarter after today. So in about 10 minutes or so, you're welcome to join us over Google Meet. The link is on the main website and probably on the roll around here after, uh, after I'm done speaking. Uh, just hop on and say hi. It's just a quick connecting time. Think of it as uh, staying after the service to talk to people uh, in, the, in the foyer before you go. So bless you as you go. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing many of you next week. And let's continue to care well for each other, pray for each other. If you're needing encouragement, do phone, uh, phone me here at the church or email me. I'd love to connect with you as best as we can. And uh, bless you. Uh, receive this benediction as you go. Children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you resist the allures of Babylon. May you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross who died for you and rose again, covering your sins freeing you from the guilt and shame that the devil would want to put upon you, that you may know the rest and the security and the relationship of God and his love for you. May you go through this week ahead blessed and assured of God's grace and filled with the knowledge of his Holy Spirit. Friends, go in peace. We do love you. Looking forward to seeing some of you next week. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.